0: Coming up on The Mark Divine Show. It's like same thing with like business. There's no way to just like make tons of money in the super easy way. I mean, you, maybe you're like out of luck, but like it's the same thing with health. There's not like a magic secret to health. Hi, this is Mark
1: Divine, the host of The Mark Divine Show. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. On the show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and talented leaders. I speak to folks from all walks of life, monks and blockchain wizards, extreme adversity survivors, stoic philosophers, and people who are really, really steeped in practices of the Eastern traditions, as well as nutritional experts. And my guest today is both of those, an amazing guy. I'm welcoming Angelo Keely today to the Mark Divine Show. He's the co-founder and CEO of Keon, which is a supplement and functional food company dedicated to helping health and fitness enthusiasts live long, active, joyful lives by providing clean energy enhancing solutions. Angelo, thanks for joining me today on the Mark Divine Show. Angelo, Keeley, thanks so much for joining me on the Mark Divine Show. Super stoked to have you. Nice to see you, my friend. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me, man. I'm honored. Yeah, no, I'm super stoked. It's been a while. I've been wanting to, uh, to get you on the show and big fan of uh, of you and and your company. Uh, also uh, co-founded, or, or at least I know my friend Ben Greenville is affiliated with your company and and involved in all the the cool fitness stuff you're doing.
0: Anyway, so what are you up to today? Where where are you right now? I am at our Keon office headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. Right on. I was just sharing right before we start, I, I went for a run, which I typically don't do. I'm more of like a weight training, walking rucksack guy, but I had a great run this morning, so I feel alert. You might motivate me to get back out there
1: and try out the old legs because similar to you. I haven't run much in the last few years, but I ran like a madman for most of my life. So probably okay to give it a break. But I tell you what though, after a long winter out there, it probably feels good to get out there and breathe in the fresh air and see the, uh, the sprouting
0: uh, grass. Yeah. It's typically a pretty easy winter here. It's like sunny. Even if it snows, it gets sunny again. You can spend a lot of time outside, but this year it was pretty, it was cold. It was cold and it was grayer than the normal. So I'm definitely, I'm ready for the spring and the summer. Yeah. Are you
1: from uh, Colorado or w- what should give us a sense of your background and your uh, life's kind of arc, your journey?
0: Yeah. So no, I'm not from here. I was born in a, in a little town called Wimberley, Texas. It's outside Austin. Okay. Uh, I was born at home there to hippie natural health fitness. No parents. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had a natural That's health cool. food store, natural health food restaurant. I was pretty much immersed in that. And then when I was one, we moved to Austin. My dad actually was a partner in like the early Whole Foods restaurant business. I was raised very much in this culture of, of health food, of whole food nutrition, but also of supplements. Never really went to a traditional doctor until I was, I think I was like six or seven. I think I had to go get a physical and I had to get my birth certificate to go to first grade. So <laughs> yeah, and we had a few acres. So I, like, I spent a lot of time outside and uh, played and had a pretty sweet. Uh, pretty Early childhood. That sounds pretty epic. Yeah, it was good. That
1: sounds epic. Now, I mean, I grew up in Upstate New York, so it's similarly. I, I was outside a lot. We had tons of land. Uh, hung out at my friend's farm, dairy farm. So we used to milk cows and and do the uh, the hay fields. You know, pitching bales of hay and catching them and stacking
0: them. And it's pretty cool. I didn't have that level of like labor. You didn't have that labor. It probably would have been good for me. I think now I realize the the amount of lessons I had to learn in adolescence and young adulthood to. Yeah, just to learn the value of hard work and consistency. I think as a kid, it was a lot more play and fun, which is great. I mean, I think it makes me who I am today. That's probably my top value is fun. Not my top value, but every single day I'm trying to have fun. And I think, uh, yeah, it makes me who I
1: am. Well, the thing that's good about that learning to be on your own outside is that work becomes play. Mm -hmm. You know, that was backbreaking work doing the hayfields, but we just had an absolute blast and we got ripped. You know, we were just in great shape. And we're just like 15, 16 years old. So kids, you know, who grow up in those environments know what I'm talking about. Um, anytime you're, you're outside and you do, you're working with your hands, you, you just learn that this can be really, really pleasurable and fun. You know, it's not looked at as work. It's, you know, we've gotten so far away from that. You know, society is just pushing us more and more into this kind of like mechanistic and digital world where you don't learn that. You know kids don't learn that when they're young. it's unfortunate.
0: I think work has a potential to be really its own mindfulness practice right maybe in today's language around it. It's like when you do something with your hands and you're really involved in it and engaged in it or with your whole body, you're going through the movements you're breathing you're you're uh you're kind of in a flow state that I think um, yeah a lot of people miss out on now if they're just focused on a screen. If you do it enough and you
1: have the right attitude, then it trains your mind to be able to activate. The flow state. It doesn't happen to everybody, you know. It really depends upon you know, your orientation and your attitude toward the repetition of what you're doing, right? When I started meditating when I was 21, I found it to be very easy, right? Whereas, like when I teach meditation these days, most people think it's like it's very, very hard to do, it and they quit, or they just, you know, they need to use an external device like an app to kind of guide them or to hold their attention, which is really it's really a preparatory practice to meditation. I found it quite easy because I would spend so much time I had spent already so much time outdoors doing that repetitive labor and also, you know, just like being alone and hiking in the Adirondack Mountains, you know, where I was from. I don't know if um you did much of that when you were younger, but when you're alone in nature and you're just you know you're just moving through nature, you might have a destination, but um if you begin to disengage from the goal of getting to that destination and you just start to enjoy the process and you know, being in nature and, and being with your breath and being with your thoughts. And eventually you get to, um, to a point where you develop a relationship with yourself, which is again, very, very profound. It sounds silly, but it's very profound to develop a relationship with yourself. Like being you to be able to talk to yourself and to be able to curate your thoughts and emotions, be able to see, you see yourself almost as if from a distance. So when you sit down and meditate, you're like, oh, I already have this down, right? I already have the kind of like early stages of what they're talking about down, this metacognitive capacity to witness my thoughts.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that value of the process itself, how you perceive the repetitions, developing the relationship with yourself, really is the heart of what we're talking about. And it can come through work. I think for me, it it probably actually came through being just having a very unstructured early childhood and just being outside and being in nature and being kind of okay being alone, like not going to a preschool, not, not being there with a lot of other people. But then I also relate it to I'm a father now. I have a 10 year old son and an eight year old daughter. And with my son right now, he is very interested in competitive basketball, which I loved basketball as a kid, but I'd never gotten to like competitive sports in that way. And so this week or the last few weeks, I've been working with him a lot on like his daily shooting practice. And I think in his mind, he thinks, oh, I want to make this many baskets. And the only thing I'm focused with him on is that every single day he's shooting 100 baskets, he's counting how many makes or he doesn't make. One day he gets 70, the next day he gets 55. And in that, when he starts to see his numbers go down, I can see inside of him, there's a little voice that starts to panic or critiques him or tells him he's not good or whatever. And, and what I'm working with him on is like the ability of just having that relationship with himself to calm himself in that moment, to trust that the next opportunity, that that next shot is to be made anew. It doesn't matter what happened before, which for me, that's fundamentally what meditation is. I mean, you're sitting there in stillness and you're focusing on your breath or, or word, whatever your practice is. Thoughts are rushing in, you're releasing that thought, and you're just kind of engaging in the next moment of the opportunity to practice that meditation. It doesn't have to be a sitting thing, it can be a work thing, it can be sports. There's so many different ways to experience it. And I do think it's unfortunate that probably so many people today are not getting a framework through something like that, whether it's work or sports or yoga or meditation or something that teaches them how to have that relationship with themselves.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think there's a growing awareness of this need. And so I think like our community and, and Ben's and you know, other friends of ours are really intent on teaching people that life is a practice. And so that you can find this mindful awareness and this sense of presence and flow doing whatever it is that you're passionate about doing, just pay attention, just pay more attention. And so we teach them kind of like tricks and tools for how to do that. I love your description uh, and it's such a gift for your son. Wow. But this discussion, like people wonder why, what is meditation and what you describe is perfect because my experience is once you can control and tame your thoughts and you can begin to disengage from them, then you begin to notice, Angelo, a, a discrete qualitative difference between working from memory or from expectation and being just absolutely present. And 99 point, you know, nine 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 percent of humanity is rarely has that experience of just being radically present, not operating out of memory or some sort of future expectation or fantasy. But there's through meditation and discrete awareness, keep coming back to this moment of now, what's happening now, what's this experience now? You begin to experience that that qualitative difference between this and thinking. I can relate. <laughs> it's so simple, but but hard to get there and also hard for people to understand the profundity of that. Like what what does it mean to be able to experience that qualitative difference? It's like means everything because in that you experience the eternal nature of the human being. You experience that time and space are in the mind, but they're not who you are you're not of time and space. You're something so much more. And all of that comes from just sitting and being more and more capable or skillful at operating outside of thought and using thought effectively, but not, but not living constantly from thought.
0: And I think the seeming paradox for many people, which is maybe why it, it's hard to experience, to grasp, is that in doing that, you actually become a more engaged actor in the world. That's right. Like, it's not like it's some kind of disengaged spiritual practice where then you're not as good of a husband or a father or... Yeah, well said. Part of my path. I ended up going to school for religious studies. That's why I went to my bachelor's degree. Did you? Yeah. So highly informed by both Western and Eastern religions. And, um, you know, it's really interesting. I think the essence of the Bhagavad Gita, which people are not familiar, is kind of like the New Testament for people who um, are into Krishna or follow Krishna in India. It's really with the beginnings of the idea of yoga, not of yoga asana, but of the philosophy of yoga, which is fundamentally that you accept your role in life and you live it out as fully as you can and kind of a surrender to God in that language of of a religious context. And in that, in that surrender to the moment and being fully present now, it's not like avoiding who you are. It's not avoiding the gifts or avoiding the role you've been given in life. It's fully embracing it and releasing the expectation of who you're supposed to be right then. Like, so rather than me, me thinking for my son, oh, I, need to, I really need to teach him or show him how to do this thing. I need to make sure he grows and develops in this way and being really focused on kind of that end goal. Instead, it's like, right now, in this moment, what is this boy for whom I am the father? What does he need right now? And that's it. And it's just being that right there, right then. I think it's a very embodied, present, socially positive practice at the same time, it's this like deeply personal thing with yourself. It's deeply personal, but the
1: self expands beyond the limited egoic concept of I am this body, I am this name, I am this, you know, I have these degrees and you know, blah, 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 these expectations. And so you release all that. This is the whole process of surrender, right? Like bhakti yoga, which you describe or, you know, Krishna talking to Arjuna is like, open your heart to who you really are. And then karma yo is then, then go do your destiny. Otherwise, you will create more suffering. Go do it, right? Fulfill
0: your role as a warrior. And it actually happens at the same time. Right. They're not separate. They're not
1: separate things.
0: Yeah. In that story, he's afraid that he's going to cause harm. He shouldn't be a warrior. It's not the right thing. No, you fully embrace your karma. You fully embrace the action in the world. And you can practice that bhakti yoga, that surrender at the same time. They're not at odds with each other. Karma and dharma
1: from that tradition are hand in glove. It's the yin and the yang, they're the same. I love this conversation because I'm also passionate about this and I love relating it to like practical life because people have a mistaken impression of mental development and what the Eastern traditions have called a spiritual path, which I, I look at them as the same, like mental or integrative development, which is what I teach. It's been called a spiritual path. Well, what's the term spirit? It's just a word, right? What we're really talking about is Developing the capacity to integrate fully and to open up to your full potential and capacity of human being, which makes, as you said very well, is like makes you more engaged because you're more present, you're more aware, your heart is open, you're more compassionate, and you bring more of yourself to the world. At the same time, you do it with a spontaneity and a light touch, a playfulness, even in the most extreme circumstances, right? That is profound. But it's just who we are naturally, when we get out of our mental way, right absolutely when we let go of attachment to the ego and to you know having to be the best. I loved sports when I was a kid, but now I'm like, you know I see that that 's just an obsession of our egoic culture that you know has to be the best or believe in the best, or it's a craving it's a mental delusion that that is really good for us. you know I hate to say that, right it's okay to strive to improve yourself but there's no best, right, in anything really. There's just what happens now. And sometimes, you know, an athletic team or an individual will triumph in the now. And other times they won't. But it doesn't make them any better or worse of an individual or any, you know, any team or sport or nation better or worse than others.
0: Yeah, I think it's if you can enjoy if you can fully embrace and enjoy the process of competition. The process I love that. And the seeking of winning. And yet at the conclusion when you win or you lose again you can start fresh and you just want to do it again and that's that you love that process that you're not yeah you're not judging your worth or the value of your life or your time about whether you won or not it's really that process and in that way i think it can be beautiful it's, it can be very helpful for people for sure if you get attached to the end then it's um, yeah it's disruptive to happiness because you can't win all the time that's right you can
1: i mean i've done a lot of podcasts with you know, champions of this and and people who've conquered that, you know. And they say the same thing. It's when they finally gave up you know, in the pursuit of that excellence or that that insane goal, right? Like that no human has ever done this before type of goal. When they finally gave up the attachment to achieving it and just kind of surrendered to just one more step, one more, you know, let's just do, just do the best I can they often achieve where they maybe wouldn't have achieved that excellence or that goal. And they recognize that it wasn't the target of the goal all along. That was important. It's a journey, not the destination, you know, and life is that. What were your like challenges? You, you know, your young childhood was, sounds pretty idyllic and cool, but you know, nobody's life is perfect. You wouldn't have become the person you are today without some significant you know kicks in the Jimmy.
0: I think the frame I presented earlier of my family was accurate, and I think in that family, um, my parents were both entrepreneurs. They were both very I would call them eccentric, loving people and just eccentric and bold. And so as a child, that was really kind of the only examples I had was these very bold people and it's probably in my genes to some degree to like have to learn all my lessons very hard on my own. Yeah, even at the dinner table just having to explain myself, figure things out like it was a bunch of individuals in a family. I think that context. And as I got into high school and started to kind of experience adolescence, I definitely pushed away from them very hard and wanted to do everything on my own and figure out everything on my own. And that took me down the path of drugs. That took me down the path of different types of social situations. I had gotten into quite a bit of trouble by the time I was 16. But when I was 16 and a half, I took too much LSD one evening. And I inadvertently, with no intention, provoked a fight with people who were much more hardcore than me, I'd say they stabbed me twice in the back. They stabbed me in the knee. So where I was stabbed, I had to have emergency abdominal surgery. They assumed I was dying and my patella tendon was severed completely. And then I was beaten very, very badly to where I, I didn't wake up for days later in the hospital. Wow. And that experience, I think the, honestly, probably the, some form of a psychosis or psychotic break, even before the trauma of the physical altercation. But then that combined with the physical altercation was a very deep wound. It was a very deep impression And that happened when I was 16 and a half, it has, I'm now 39 and it's certainly been something that I've worked with ever since. (laughs) It had a very big impression on me at that time though. And I think it, it initiated for me the beginning of, it was very much my transition into adulthood into realizing that my life was fragile, that every decision that I made or decisions I didn't make would impact me going forward. Yeah. Just how important my health was. Like, I think I was raised in this family where health was important, but I don't think I, I didn't understand it yet as my own person. And so um, that really kickstarted for me, very deep dive into nutrition, into physical practices, not just like playing sports, but like things like cold therapy. And I was really like barefoot running, going back to the running thing. Like I was like heat and acupuncture and yoga and, and also like spiritual seeking. I got emancipated when I was 17. I then I was like, I just got to figure this out on my own. I got emancipated when I was 17, started supporting myself. By the way, how long did it take you to heal from that? Incident because that
1: sounds pretty profound, like you're near death.
0: Uh, the physical healing,
1: I guess, physical and, and psychological. What was this a little bit about some of the...
0: I'm still healing from it are, psychologically. Right. I mean, physically, it took me about a year, okay, just with a patella tendon being totally severed, like to be able to like run again and play sports again. I mean, it was you know six months, I was bounced back pretty quickly, but I, I'd say about a year that really kick started for me in college. I just became very interested in meditation at 16. I mean, I became very interested in these things. I think other life events later in life provoke that kind of interest. And I was like, I want to do meditation. I want to do yoga. I want to figure out what's how to heal myself. I want to do talk therapy. And so I became very engaged in these processes. And then when I went to college, I discovered like, you know, I want to study philosophy, psychology, religious studies. Like I was a seeker. Yogis
1: say it takes a thousand lifetimes. Yeah, <laughs> to find yoga, so you know you were ready for it, right?
0: I guess, yeah.
1: Or you were a yogi in your last life,
0: yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, I think that those college years really were a very profound healing process for me, and you know, actually, so through that experience, I went to a Catholic university, and there were brothers that that lived there, brothers and priests. So I actually lived with them for like a year and a half, and through that process, there was like a lot of like just built in daily meditation and prayer. But I was also very into yoga and my own meditation practice, etc. I think that that was really fundamental. I did a lot of multi-day meditation retreats, I think just kind of helped heal me. And then when I was 21, I went to India for a summer and half of that summer was doing volunteer work at an orphanage run by that Catholic group. And then the other half was to do intensive yoga study at an ashram up north. Wow! And at the end of that yoga study. I was in a bus in the foothills of the Himalayas and my bus collided with another bus and the other bus went off a cliff. Oh my goodness. And there's no rescue efforts there. So the beginning of your question was what kind of has made you who you are? And they had right. a follow-up question of like, how long did it take you to heal from that first thing? <laughs> right. You know, this was like a whole new trauma that was not me being wild and crazy and provoking these very dangerous things. I mean, in some ways it was, I was like a 21 year old traveling in India alone, but you know, suddenly I was involved in a situation where I was in a rescue effort, you know, for a, a day, basically trying to rescue these people off of this cliff, and um, many people dead and dying around me, which I had not been exposed to before. And at the end of that day, I went back to the ashram, I laid down, and I just started shaking pretty violently. And in my mind, I was like, "Am I making this up? Am I, you know, like, why am I doing? It? Like, what's going on?" Because I didn't, I didn't know at that time things that I now know about natural trauma response, actually being in animals to shake, to release that from the nervous system. So I'd say to some degree between being stabbed on acid at 16 and then that bus accident five years later, I clearly had integrated an amount of the learning and done some form of practices to where when a new type of trauma arrived that I intuitively knew or intuitively trusted or reacted in such a way that I handled it, I think in a more, not mature way, but there was some intuitive sense you know to do that, the natural sense, so clearly, I think I'd reached some kind of stage then, you know, but then over the next eighteen years, I did different forms of therapy and meditation, et cetera, and things have continued to emerge and you know I think really honest, just in the last since 2020, I committed to a pretty intensive three times a week psychoanalysis, which was pretty transformative for me. I think that that not even trying to go through some kind of treatment plan to like heal. You weren't
1: identifying anything in particular. You're doing it for for transformation.
0: Yeah. And I think just for for naming what comes up, like what comes up in the moment. And when you talk enough three times a week about whatever's up in that moment, whatever led to me kind of provoking the situation when I was 16 and how that emerged in my life, there are patterns that had existed in me that I didn't even know were still there that I was finally able to uncover and to address in these last few years. And so I think I feel much more healed now than I do probably five years ago and integrated. And yeah, and it's an ongoing process and I'm, I'm continuing. I know I'm not done. I'm not done cooking yet. <laughs> There's yeah. no there there
1: when it comes to your own evolution, but what an extraordinary story. And, you know, when I look at you at 39, I you know, I, you're a young man still. Thank you. You may think, wow, <laughs> I'm going to be 40 soon. I'll be 60 soon. And I feel like a young man and, uh, you know, and I've had a, a similar kind of like, Intensity of desire to be whole, you know to do whatever possible to uncover the karmic drives and and the conditioning that could potentially hold me back from being a whole person and from fulfilling my my calling and it sounds like you know for whatever reason you had that, whether it was the accident that opened that up to you and there was something that opened it up to me because I certainly wasn't this way until I started meditating when I was twenty
0: one but twenty one that's pretty young to engage, I think, in a contemplative practice,
1: yeah, and I think anyone in listening like the sooner you start a meditative practice, the better, and at the same time, there's preparatory work to do, like you were an athlete, and i and we we spent a lot of time outside, and a lot of people just don't succeed because they they don't recognize that the way these practices were taught in the other traditions, you know like yoga or in in any of those Eastern tradition was there's like a, a a wax on wax off period of preparation, right? Of both physical, physiological, and psychological foundation building. And if you don't do that preparation, then you don't really get to skip the line. You're going to have trouble with meditation. Furthermore, if you have a serious um, ego development issue, which there's a ton of that going on in our Western world, like narcissism or borderline personality or you know something that's like really puts you on that edge. And most people are, of course are unaware of that. and if you take up meditation or you do psychedelics and you have a fantastical mystical experience, the ego will co-opt that. You take on a god complex, and we have a lot of spiritual bypassing going on as well. So it's why it's important to have these conversations and also to to understand that often you know a good teacher is really valuable when it comes to development, right? Because you could easily trap yourself in a spiritual bypass situation you could easily do some harm with psychedelics right by not having the space you know properly protected you could easily get trapped in what we kind of referenced earlier in the sense of disattachment or detachment from reality because you have these you know experience of kind of like bliss or or unity and you think that that's where you're supposed to be like that there's an over there Not recognizing that there is no over there; it's all right here, right? So you can get trapped in that as well. These are all pointed to by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra. These obstacles, right? You know, everyone needs to know, like, hey, everyone's journey is different, right? Everyone's journey is going to be different, but there are some contraindications. There's some preparatory work. You know, pay attention and listen to a teacher.
0: I think you so succinctly name though that paradigm of maybe someone having a susceptibility towards borderline personality disorder, some kind of narcissistic tendencies. And then engaging in some kind of mystical experience and then it actually accentuating that and further hardening it. I actually haven't heard someone describe it the way that you did so succinctly. And I think that is really, it's very on point. And it makes me wonder sometimes, like, why did I, I say this with humility, like, you know, why did it kind of work out for me? Like, you know, I think I have a pretty real relationship with my wife and with my children and with my family and with people I work with. Like, I think, I don't think my idea of who I am is like totally different than who they think their idea of me is. And I'm not like... Um... You've
1: gotten your ego out of the way. That's the whole thing. You surrendered enough to that, right? So especially these challenges you had, right? Meditation and spiritual and especially silent meditation and you know, spending time in an ashram, It's it's humility building, right? It's like mm-hmm. there's nothing more humbling than just sitting in silence and looking at the crazy cacophony of your mind and just not being scared by it, but just sitting with it. And then all of a sudden recognizing that that's
0: not you. I think that might be actually the advantage potentially of what I might call slower practices. Like psychedelics can have this amazing influence on people. Sure. And yet the dose of time and space and lessons and light, like it's so much all at once. That's right. Like when I had that experience at 16, it was too much. It was too much for me. So then when you asked how long did it take me, I mean, it's taken me like 20 years just to integrate it. And that's through a lot of things like meditation and, yoga and, and mindful exercise.
1: I think you're right. I, I think that like the psychedelic movement of the sixties, you know, a lot of people had that, they got really damaged by it because they just couldn't handle when it. When I have
0: that same concern for people today, like that are going on, I do too. They're going on these plant medicine journeys. And I'm not saying anything about them. Cause I actually don't know. I've, I'm not them. I've never gone on those, but right. I hear people doing it and they come back and they feel so much. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like I, there's no free lunch. There's no, it's like same thing with like totally. business. There's no way to just like make tons of money in the super easy way. I mean, you, maybe you like out of luck, but like it's same thing with health. There's not like a magic secret to health.
1: Okay. We're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. It's been a painful process for me, you know. People uh, look—it's like it all looks good from the outside, but from the inside, it's it's sausage making. And you know, I've lost millions of dollars far more times than I've earned. You know, whatever I have right now. And so, it's—you're right. There's no, there's no free lunch. There's no free lunch with development either. And I agree with you. I share your concern. This is why I've been bringing up lately a few times with psychedelics. I, I am a big fan of psychedelics for healing, especially with, from trauma, like I, I promote it for vets and I've done work with it myself, mm-hmm. but only in the care of a very experienced healer who understands how the plant medicines work and who can do the pre-preparation and holding the space during the experience and then the post experience integration. You got to look at it as a long process, right? It's not- I was going
0: to say, I would assume that post is pretty important and, and I'm not an expert in this field, but my understanding is even like the studies they did at John Hopkins with the cancer patients, it was the psilocybin-facilitated experience. And then it was like eight weeks of CBT. Right. You know, so there was, a, there was a program that followed up after it to help integrate. And I'm not, I don't know that CBT is the right combination. It's with something. Some, right? some kind of psychedelic. I actually remember the first time I went to a Vipassana course, I must've been like 18 or something. And my friend freaked out and he was like, we got to get out of here. And we left in the middle. You know, I had been five days of no talking, no reading, no writing. 10 hours a day of meditation. And we like left in the middle and I was like ripped open. It was not good to leave in the middle. I needed to like be through the whole thing and have them bring me through the end of the process in some form of integration. It's like, you know, I think just kind of blowing up your mental space, it's not enough. You need to consistently build it and nurture it and support it.
1: There was a Harvard um, psychologist, I think his name was Engel, You know, was a Buddhist meditation practitioner, and and of course, Buddhist psychology is the psychology of the mind. So he began to bring these practices to his patients, and he worked with you know a lot of people with ego development issues, and and he found very quickly that this was not going to work. And so one of his quotes I love, and I've always kind of reminded it me that there's preparatory work to do. Back to why we're having this conversation, and he said, "You've you've got to be somebody before you can be nobody." Which means that the ego has to get strong enough in order to recognize itself that it's bullshit, right? So the ego has to recognize itself as a story in order for it to let itself go. If the ego thinks it's the center of the human, you know, which happens with, you know, with um, adults who don't have full and healthy ego development, you know, they have some sort of trauma or something less radically unnurturing happening as a child. Then the psychedelic experience or the deep mystical experience from meditation, you know, the ego isn't strong enough to recognize itself as the story. So it takes that story on and says, I am that.
0: I really relate to that. Man, you've said so many things today, Mark, that feel so succinct and like just precise. What you're saying to right now, I'm like just starting to get like even after those other experiences, my 20s and my 30s, I was just like fighting, trying to like make myself something in the world and figure something out. And i had had these experiences and I was practicing spiritual stuff and trying to do things, but I was still just grasping all the time, just like grasping at these things. It's like literally just in like the last year, I've settled more. And that's like from someone who's been working so hard on it for, again, I think I'm still a very young person. I'm not even 40. Here's another insight because I did the same thing. It's
1: like, We think that our own growth comes by adding uh, meditative practice, by adding the ability to concentrate more, by adding concepts. So we study Advaita, we study Vedic texts and Patanjali and (laughs) Yoga Sutras, you know what I mean? And all these things, whatever, or Western psychology, you know, and I've done tons of that in EMDR. And so you go into that and you're you're just out there grabbing, grabbing, grabbing. And then you get to this point where things start to, to get a little bit clearer because you're now able to have the experience of reality in your everyday life through, when I mean reality, it's like right where we were ta- what we were talking about at the beginning of this recording, like the reality of just pure radical presence beyond the concepts, beyond the thinking. And then you, a shift happens. So this is the shift that you're going through. The shift happens is that, holy cow. Growth doesn't happen by adding things. It happens by subtracting things. And then you enter the process of surrender. That's the turnaround point in the seeker's journey. When they stop trying to seek to add things to their life or to think that there's something more that they don't have, and so they're going to go to this teacher or go to that retreat. I've stopped going to all retreats. I used to be a retreat junkie, just like you. <laughs> I've stopped it all because I realized that wherever you go, there you are. You're not gonna. Yeah. It's, I'm not going to get any better, stronger, faster, smarter by going to another retreat. What I need to do is sit and just begin to subtract concepts and identity structures and subtract all the conditioning of your life to get back to
0: your raw, natural nature. You're right. That was another good one. That was another very, I think, precise and succinct lesson on the stage of development.
1: Yeah. What else we share, and and Ben Greenfield, my buddy uh, also, and this is missed a lot also in development, is that the body is really important to bring along with you. This is something that never really got taught well. It's the reason why asana exists in yoga, right? Is one of the eight limbs, right? Because the yogis understood that the body needs to be really, really healthy and pure, saucha, right? It needs to be pristine in order for the brain to be able to experience the higher states and stages of consciousness for evolution to occur. It happens faster if your body is strong and pure. You have that foundation. It's a limiting factor, if not. That's right. It will be a limiting factor if not. And so I love that you're you're into fitness, I'm into fitness, but I don't do it because I, it's enjoyable to move functionally fit. It's, it's great, but I also do it because I want the, the body brain to be healthy so that the whole mind can flow through it, right? Or work with it effectively. And one of the things that I don't know a lot about, but I, and I want to learn from you is I do supplementation and I take Keon literally every day in my smoothie, but I don't really understand what it does. <laughs> <laughs> I just trusted Ben. Ben says, take this stuff. It's great for you. And I'm like, okay.
0: Well, sometimes it's that simple and that easy. You know, that could be a good on its own. If it, if it is indeed that good, right? Then do you need to know? Well, I know. I, I'm curious though. Like, yeah, I'm curious. I, you know, like when I talk to
1: my friend, Daniel Schmolzenberger, I also take neurohackers stuff every day because mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, But I don't really understand the science behind all their supplements, but I believe them. So like, I believe you and I believe Ben. So what's the science behind your amino acids and the other stuff that you do at Keon?
0: So I think at the the fundamental level of amino acids, the, the product that you're talking about is Keon aminos and it's essential amino acids. It's all nine essential amino acids in a very specific formula. The underlying principle of essential amino acids is probably best understood when thinking about protein. The way that we typically get essential amino acids in our diet is through protein. And the reason why this is so important is that unlike the other two macronutrients, carbohydrates and fat, where their primary role, not only, but the primary role is energy. You, know, you consume these carbs and then you, you burn them. They're converted into ATP and you use them as actually energy to fuel your body, similar with fat. The role of protein is a little different. It can be used in that form, but the more primary role is to actually replace the proteins in your body. So it's actually to help rebuild your body, not to fuel your body, but to rebuild your body. This is why bodybuilders are so big on
1: protein. They think that's like the only thing.
0: Well, yeah, because they're literally trying to increase the mass of their body, right? right? They're trying to increase the mass of their muscle. You need carbohydrates, et cetera, for this. But protein is the thing that literally gets converted into new muscle tissue, right? Like it is the raw material of that. So I guess going to the heart of like, well, why, how does that work? The proteins in our body are in a constant state of what we call muscle protein turnover. And what that means is that the proteins are being broken down into their individual parts. And when a protein's broken down, it gets converted into amino acids. These 20 little amino acids are the building blocks of the protein. And then those amino acids are used again to help rebuild new proteins. And the reason why they get broken down and then rebuilt are for a myriad of reasons. It's to, uh, in some ways, there's half-lives of certain proteins. Like they just, they need to be broken down and rebuilt because it's like to refreshen them in a way. Sometimes though, you need uh, additional proteins in other parts of your body. There's other priorities happening. So you'll break down one, supply another one, another place in your body. When they get broken down, you cannot reuse all of the amino acids that make them up. Some of them get converted into urea and you pee them out. So you must consume protein exogenously to help replace the proteins in your body. And when we talk about the proteins in our body, yeah, bodybuilders think about muscle. But we're talking all of your vital organs, your liver, your heart, your kidneys, et cetera. Proteins also, and the amino acids that make them up, are the precursors of your neurotransmitters. So, literally, the stuff that makes your brain work, your emotions, your mood, which are existing within these neurotransmitters in a way, are derivatives of this protein. So, many times when people actually die of chronic illness, it's because They have organ failure. They literally don't have enough of the raw materials anymore and the parts of their body no longer work. So protein plays this very, 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 very different role than carbohydrates or fat do in the body. Now, when you look at protein and you're consuming different types of protein to help support the rebuilding of your organs, of your muscle, et cetera, there's a key element to distinguish between essential amino acids and non-essential amino acids. Typically, what's much more known within the realm of nutrition science is that essential amino acids are the ones that are, quote, essential because your body cannot synthesize them. Your body can actually convert essential amino acids into non-essential amino acids, but your body cannot convert non-essential amino acids into essential ones. So you, you literally must eat proteins. When you consume a different types of protein, they're made up of both essential and non-essential. For example, very high quality animal proteins like whey protein or egg white. Or chicken, they're like forty percent. The protein portion of it is like forty percent essential. The other sixty percent is non-essential, and that essential you must get them right because even if you only eat those, your body could make the non-essential. That doesn't mean you want to do that, but you must get those. But maybe the the more very interesting, very fundamental part about essential amino acids is that they are one hundred percent responsible for muscle protein synthesis. So we've done studies where we give people only essential amino acids only non-essential amino acids, or a combination of essential and non-essential in proportions that are similar to like steak. And we've clearly seen that the essential amino acids create all of the new muscle protein synthesis. So when consuming them, that's what actually tells your body, oh, let's build new proteins, let's build new muscle. The others do not. They get The non-essential get used as raw materials to help rebuild some of that muscle and to rebuild some of those proteins, but you actually don't use them all again, they get converted into urea and into sugars via gluconeogenesis, but it's really the essential amino acids that kickstart that process. So when you know all that, if you just say, I don't want to supplement, I just want to eat high quality whole foods, how should I think about this? Well, you want to look at protein sources that are high in protein, first of all, mm-hmm. typically, Makes sense. and that would be, <laughs> it tends to be, it mo- is mostly animal proteins. That can be vegetarian, but animal proteins are, the food sources are higher in protein, like grains, quinoa, et cetera, things like that have protein in them, but there's also lots of carbs, et cetera. Next, you'd want to look at that source and say, well, even in the protein that's in that food, how much of it is essential amino acids? Because that's the key component that my body really needs. It's not even going to use all of the non-essential ones and all proteins are not created equal. So you're going to look for that one. And then if you looked a little bit deeper You'd look at actually this is getting pretty nerdy and sciency but what's the proportions of those unique essential amino acids relative to each other because there's certain ones that your body wants more of going back to the idea of the limiting factor of the body like if you don't have enough physical if your physical body is not healthy enough it may limit spiritual or mental or other types of development if you don't have amounts of certain amino acids it will limit the amount that all the amino acids can work together to build new proteins there's qualities of the protein. And what I would just say right off the bat is that you can absolutely consume only whole foods and I think live a pretty good life. I don't think people have to choose supplements. I think supplements should be supplementary. It's an (laughs) insurance policy to me. It's an insurance policy. Yeah. So now here's why they're especially important. I think they are very relevant probably for you. Essential amino acids taken in a free form supplement instead of taken as part of a whole food protein. Because they're concentrated, and because they've already been broken down, they stimulate new protein synthesis at a much higher degree than a whole food protein would. You
1: don't have to use energy to break down the protein from the whole food, yeah.
0: You don't have to use energy to break down the protein, and because the proportions are specific, and because it's not just the energy use, like literally because it immediately enters the blood, basically, right and immediately goes into the muscle, it stimulates a greater muscle protein response. On top of that, it is only the essential amino acids. So in a young, healthy adult, one gram of essential amino acids in an ideal proportion compared to one gram of a whey protein powder, which is kind of like the gold standard for sports nutrition, muscle protein synthesis, the essential amino acids is going to contribute two times the amount of muscle protein synthesis as the whole food protein because it has two times the amount of essential amino acids and it's immediately available. If you give that essential amino acid one gram, and it's not one gram, you actually need to consume like five grams at a time or you know, 10 grams of protein but we'll just for the simplicity of the one gram to one gram. If you give that to an athlete before they do resistance training, it's three times the muscle protein synthesis as the whey protein. And that's because of how the amino acids enter the blood, enter the muscle tissue, support the training process. But here's where it gets really interesting. As you age, starting at age 30, your body's ability to break down proteins, to break them down and get the essential amino acids out of them, and then the sensitivity of your body to prioritize new protein synthesis is reduced. So every decade at 30, the efficiency and the effectiveness of the essential amino acids in a supplement become more and more powerful than the protein. So by age 40, it's probably three times as effective as a whey protein. By age 50, 4, as you get older and older, it becomes five up to five, six times more, more uh efficient at stimulating protein synthesis than a whole food protein. So if you're a 60-year-old athlete, it's very, very, very relevant for you. That's because it's going to be more efficiently, effectively used in your body as an athlete. It's going to support you. And as you're aging, the risk of muscle loss due to the fact that your body cannot digest the proteins as well and you're less sensitive to stimulating new muscle protein synthesis is reduced, the value of those essential amino acids greatly increase. So if you're a 25-year-old and you're not really that active, you walk, You eat minimal calories, you're not overweight, you're not really trying to be super fit, you're not really investing in trying to build more muscle yet, you don't need to take these. The more that you're interested in being an athlete and you want more out of your athletic endeavors, you want better recovery, and we can go into more of the reasons for that, and the more that you age, the more important it becomes to supplement with something like essential amino acids or to be extremely strategic with your whole food nutrition diet. Yeah.
1: Which takes a lot of energy and time and, you know, research and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. How much do you need? Like for me, like, say, I'm not, you know, spending hours a day training like I used to, but you know, an hour or so.
0: Yeah, this is what I would say. It depends on how much lean muscle you want to maintain as you age and how active you want to be. One serving of Chion Aminos gives you five grams of essential amino acids. There is a linear impact, a linear increase of impact up to 15 grams. So if you take three servings at once, you will get that much more muscle protein synthesis. After 15 grams, it reduces an impact. It's similar to the way protein works. If you eat a whole food protein, you'll get real value out of that protein up to like 40, 50 grams. After that, you still use the protein, but you use it as an energy source. It gets used more as like a sugar to give you energy. It's not being actually used to help you build muscle or to maintain proteins in your body, to maintain protein synthesis in your body. So up to three servings at once creates a maximum protein synthesis spike in your body and supports new protein production. In terms of how often to take it, once you consume essential amino acids, that's the truth of it. <laughs> once you consume essential amino acids, either as a supplement or as a whole food protein, your body enters a process of muscle protein synthesis that lasts about three hours. It depends based off of how quickly the protein's breaking down, whether it's a free form supplement, whether it's you know whey or casein. Like th- there's a variety, but let's say it's about three hours. After which, your body goes into basically net muscle loss. You start to break down more proteins than you rebuild. So that's why bodybuilders consume protein or some type of essential amino acid supplement like every three hours. That's why they would wake up in the middle of the night and eat chicken breast because their goal is like, I want to build and maintain as much muscle as possible. If you're older, like let's say someone's 80 years old, you might engage in that kind of thinking around like, hey, I'm going to take essential amino acids or I'm going to eat protein every three hours, not to get jacked and ripped, but to just maintain lean muscle as you age because you're in a different phase of life and it's that much harder to maintain it, et cetera. So outside of exercise, that's what I would say is you can basically do it every three hours. (laughs) But if you're already eating a protein rich meal, it's redundant. You don't necessarily need to do it then. In and around exercise, is your primary workout like a CrossFit workout right now?
1: Yeah, ish. Yoga and and a high-intensity wad every day, pretty much.
0: There are benefits to taking essential amino acids before that type of exercise, during and after. Taking before will increase the effectiveness of the new muscle development and will help you prevent getting as tired during it. Taking it during will help you keep from getting as tired and it'll support the muscle development. And taking after, while it still supports the muscle development, it really supports the recovery. So you could take, you know, a scoop before, a scoop during, and a scoop after, or you could only choose one of those. It's all kind of dependent on, again, like what your goals are and how important these things are to you. As I've picked up Muay Thai or kickboxing this last year, I hadn't really been doing that kind of hit type workout before. I was doing more like walking and, and resistance training. In doing that, I take some before, I take some during, and I take some after. And it, in that way, I just, I don't get sore because it prevents muscle protein breakdown as well. I really don't get sore. It has really enhanced the muscular gains from something that's not like lifting really heavy, but I'm still training my muscles. It's really improved my endurance. And I, you know, I have like an unlimited supply. So, (laughs) 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 but yeah, I mean, for me, like the way I take it is I take some first thing in the morning because I like to be fasted in the morning, but I'm not trying to tax my brain by not having access to amino acids and I'm not trying to like lose muscle in the morning or get like grumpy or something. So I take amino acids until I eat and then, you know, take it before, during, after training. And that works for me. And I'm 39. I can imagine as I got older, that may shift or change depending on what my goals are.
1: Mm -hmm. That's fascinating.
0: So taking your smoothie every day is great. Yeah. I I don't think I'm using enough of it. Actually, I was only putting one scoop in
1: the smoothie. I think I'll bring some down to work and start, you know, maybe having some like after my workout and, Later on. And I I oftentimes don't eat lunch. And so I'll go without protein, you know, for a long period of time. Like that's what happened today. I haven't eaten anything today. And it's like three o'clock in the afternoon.
0: Yeah. Just having that, you know, midday. See, see how it affects your energy levels. It's not like a caffeine type energy level, but it does it helps regulate your amino acids in your blood, which then become the neurotransmitters for your brain. So I think it it generally helps regulate mood. It helps prevent additional muscle breakdown to supply your blood with those amino acids and most people just feel like general improvement in wellness, energy levels, mood. Would someone
1: use it in lieu of, let's say a protein, let's say, they're God, I'm already spending a hundred dollars a month on a protein, mm-hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. Would you do this in lieu of a protein to save money or
0: the both? This is what I would say is I say they're two different tools and depending on your age and your goals, et cetera, you decide what works for you. You know, I think people who really focus on protein nutrition, they might have beef jerky that they snack on they might take a protein powder they might like you know they might think about things in a certain type of way i think that essential amino acids are a very very efficient tool that you can consider i haven't like given up protein powder you know but like i don't take it as much but some people do you know i mean i think here could be a typical day for me i wake up in the morning i take essential amino acids because i don't want food and like like a whole protein powder type experience you know it's much lighter. The essential amino acid experience is a much lighter experience. And then later I have, you know, maybe later in the morning, I might just have protein. Like I have a protein shake and then i can have salad with meat. And then later, if there was some kind of like snack that I needed, or I was like, have a protein shake mm-hmm. or have essential amino acids. I think they're lighter. You can take them as capsules or you can take them as these fruit flavored powders that we make. Yeah, they're much more efficient. I think another thing to think about is if you're older, they're going to be much more effective than a protein. At my age, it's kind of like, you know, it's in the middle. You know, it's like if I take, I'm not going to take protein before I go work out. Like I'm not going to be drinking protein powder before I go work out and do I'm working out. I, You know, I might do it afterwards. And so it's like, I just, I converted to the essential amino acids. They're more efficient. They're more effective. Um, And actually, even when you examine it from a price comparison, they basically end up being more affordable, particularly as you get older, because they're so much more efficient and effective. Like, you know, 10 grams of essential amino acids could be worth, 40 grams of protein for someone who's 50, you know? And if they're exercising, that much more. That's such
1: a different experience, too. I mean, the the amino acids dissolve and you're just drinking little flavored water. Yeah. Whereas a protein shake is like a big, thick, you know, kind of sometimes you can eat it
0: with a spoon. Keon, we have a grass fed whey protein isolate that is awesome. Can't tell you how much time I spent taste testing every single raw (laughs) grass fed (laughs) whey protein isolate that we could get. And like, it's the best one, it's amazing. We flavored it with, you know, only organic chocolate and vanilla, and then like a little bit of like Himalayan pink salt. One's not good and one's not bad. They're different. You know, one is much lighter. It's fruit flavored. It's kind of more efficient. And I think too, if people are really interested in kind of a lighter load, the caloric efficiency of the amino acids is greater. It's just super condensed. It's like super condensed muscle protein synthesis. That's cool. Yeah.
1: Thank you for explaining all that. We've got to wrap this up. we have been going for a while here, but what's next for you? what's the big project
0: on your, your horizon? You know, in terms of keon it's, um, I started from a more entrepreneurial eccentric kind of family thing. And that's been a lot of the ways in which I've, I've been successful in life. It hasn't been through like a really traditional disciplined practice and consistency kind of work ethic. It's been a ton of work, but it's been just like explosive work. Like I just nonstop go and more of like a, yeah, just visionary, eccentric, manic type. And as I've aged, I've become more of a father and a better husband and have built this company. I'm learning more and more about focus, consistency, doing less, like you said, removing things. Originally, I think the idea was like, we're gonna make all these products and do this and that. And then it's become really clear that it's do less and do it better. I love that. It's a great mantra, do less, better. (laughs) Do less, better. You know, it's like, be great. Greatness comes through like, this doing less and doing it better.
1: Focus and simplicity. Yeah,
0: that's my hope. Is that in everything you know, that I can be a better husband. That I can be a better father. And that in Keon, what are like little consistent tweaks we can do to like make customer service better, to make communication and marketing on the website clearer and better, to make the products better, to ensure that we um, have even you know better explanations of the science that we educate, that we support people, that everything gets better and greater versus some new, fresh, cool, exciting, novel thing. My goal is for us to be
1: great. That's awesome. What a great place to kind of pin this. We'll do less better. Focus and simplicity, but simple is not easy, as you know. So it takes a lot of discipline. It's been a great conversation. Really fantastic. Thank you very much, Angelo. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for the lessons you shared with me today. hoo ya! Well, that was a very... Surprising conversation with Angelo Keeley. Very, very cool conversation about the different um, nuances of meditation and spiritual practice. Like, who knew? So cool. And we had a deep dive on amino acids and their importance and the difference between protein supplementation and amino acids. Very, very cool conversation. Thank you so much, Angelo. Really appreciate you and your time today. Show notes will be up on markdivine.com. You can find the episode also on our YouTube channel. Reach out to me on Twitter at MarkDivine or on Instagram and Facebook at RealMarkDivine or on my LinkedIn profile. If you're not on my newsletter distro list, please consider joining to receive divine inspiration every Tuesday into your email inbox where I disseminate my most top of mind learnings from the week, the show notes from the podcast, a blog, habits to inspire you, and uh, practices and a book I'm reading, all sorts of cool stuff. Go to markdivine.com to subscribe. Thanks so much to I awesome team of Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell and Catherine Devine who helped produce this show, bring incredible guests like Angela to you and get the newsletter out every week. Ratings and reviews are very helpful. So if you haven't done so, please consider doing so wherever you listen, it helps other people find it, keeps us at the top of the rankings and it's much appreciated. Thanks so much for listening, for being part of the Mark Divine show. Please share the show with your friends. We need to bring more positive energy and light into the world to push back against all that craziness. So thanks for doing the work. And being part of the change that you want to see in the world. Ooh Till next time. This is Divine.